Hello, and welcome to the Great War Aircast, a miniseries on the air war from 1914 to 1916. This is part two of three, Violent Adolescence. In the last episode, we discussed the origins of military aviation from the 1899 Hague Convention to the eve of the First World War. In part two, we will see how the aircraft evolved from a vehicle of recreation to the weapon of choice for the belligerent air forces. At the outbreak of war, each of the major powers had an air force of sorts, ranging from the best prepared like France and Germany to the most rudimentary like Turkey or Austria-Hungary. Regardless of which side of the fence you stood on, air power was firmly the third wheel to the army and navy. While the opposing land and sea forces had histories of confrontation, there was little animosity amongst the early airmen. They saw the war as an adventure, a chance to be pioneers in what was shaping up to be one of the most momentous conflicts in human history. Airmen were attracted to the romantic side of the war. Flying high above a roaring battlefield appealed to their sense of danger and excitement. Death was the furthest thing from their minds, and not a second thought was given to crashing or being shot down. After all, none of the airplanes built before 1914 were designed for combat. Their mechanical limitations restricted them to observation and scouting. For the first year of the war, aircraft served as the eyes and ears of the armies on the ground. Within weeks, French, German, and British aircraft were making observation flights over each other's territory. Like commuters going to work, opposing pilots waved cheerily at each other, with the comradeship of men conscious of being members of an elite group. Indeed, some opposing pilots even knew each other from their peacetime flying clubs. Compared to the slaughter taking place on the ground, the war in the air was defined by chivalry and sportsmanship. Each day, pilots would take to the skies. There, they would set to work, tracking enemy movements and maintaining contact between their own forces. It was during the mobile phase of the land war when aircraft showed their value as military instruments. As the Germans swept through Belgium and into France, fixed-wing aircraft were the only machines capable of keeping up with events on the ground. Not only were they easier to transport, but their mobility allowed them to get around the battlefields faster than airships. For example, a major reason the retreat to the Marne did not result in a rout was because Franco-British pilots were able to maintain contact with their respective armies. To give you some idea of how chaotic the first weeks of the war were, one German squadron reportedly changed airfields 16 times over a three-week period. Another factor which contributed to the aircraft's success was the weather. August and September 1914 presented near-perfect flight conditions, and as a result, the generals began to demand more from their flyers. Typically, pilots were on call from dawn to dusk, but given their limited numbers, they were essentially double and triple shifted. Within weeks, the first symptoms of battle fatigue were being reported, with some airmen falling asleep in their cockpit soon after landing. In October, a British pilot reported spending 14 and a half hours flying over five days. The heavier workload led to mistakes. Poor visibility, mixed in with the chaos of the race to the sea, caused many pilots to make inaccurate or exaggerated observations. Regiments were mistaken for brigades and so forth. Sometimes, this led to some humorous misinterpretations. 
It was reported that in the early days of the war, a German observer reported that in one British position, the men were thoroughly disorganized and running about in a blind panic. Turns out, the panicked soldiers have been playing a game of soccer. Like their comrades on the ground, the belligerent air forces had to adapt as the Western Front settled into stalemate. As the line stagnated, the nature of military aviation changed yet again. It was no longer enough to merely observe enemy movements. While airships and other dirigibles could scan the horizon for hours at a time, aircraft were the only machines capable of seeing over the hill. Enemy networks had to be plotted in detail and objectives clearly investigated if the infantry would have any hope of advancing beyond no man's land. Just two months prior, opposing airmen would have waved at one another, but the Brotherhood of the Air had evaporated by the end of 1914. By November, opposing pilots were taking pot shots at one another, as protecting one's network became the number one priority. Early air battles were little more than pilots firing at each other with pistols and rifles. Neither side had any success with this, of course. So, airmen began experimenting with mounted weapons. It is worth noting that arming one's aircraft was left to the individual pilot. None of the aircraft flown in 1914-1915 were designed to carry mounted weapons, so it was all about improvisation, with some ideas ranging from the practical to the outlandish. Some pilots carried bricks and bottles. Another mounted a five-pound naval cannon and loaded it with nails. One of the strangest designs came from Russian pilot Alexander Kuzikov. Inspired by old naval battles, Kuzikov carried a small boat anchor tied to the end of a rope. His theory was he could drop the anchor while flying high above an enemy aircraft, snare it, and then trigger the gunpowder tied to the end, thus blowing the aircraft to bits. Unsurprisingly, Kuzikov found the contraption difficult to handle, and soon abandoned his experiments. For most pilots, the machine gun was the only weapon to show any potential. In 1910, French pioneer Gabriel Vosson mounted a 37mm Hotchkiss on his airplane and managed to hit a bedsheet at 1,500 feet with 70% accuracy. While impressive, such sportsmanship was beyond the skill level of aviators in the first years of the war. Combat pilots did not have months to practice their marksmanship, and with no established gunnery schools, the only time a pilot could get any real practice was during an actual mission. Furthermore, with most airplanes being either pushers or tractors, there was no standard way of arming. A pusher aircraft was capable of mounting a machine gun on the nose, which allowed the observer an unparalleled field of fire. British pilot Louis Strange was one of the first to do this when he mounted a machine gun in the observer's cockpit of his farm in Shorthorn, a two-seater busher biplane. But there was no such option for tractor aircraft. With the propeller in the nose, the only way to arm a tractor was to mount a weapon on the top wing, directly above the pilot. But to operate the weapon with any degree of efficiency, the pilot had to stand straight up in the cockpit and use his knees to maintain control. If the weapon jammed, then he was out of luck. At this stage in the war, parachutes were not yet a thing and pilots were held into their machines with rudimentary harnesses. Exposing your body to a 100 kilometer an hour headwind 
resulted in a few pilots nearly being sucked out of their own cockpit. Turning the recreational airplane into an instrument of war required more than improved weapon systems. To account for the additional weight, new frames and engines were required. We must not forget that although aircraft were being used in war, they were not war machines. Unlike the tank or battleship, none of the aircraft of 1914-1915 were designed for combat. But all that would change in July 1915, with the invention of the synchronizer. In his book, Marked for Death, James Hamilton Patterson argues the synchronizer was the holy grail of early air warfare, and it would certainly be difficult to argue with that assessment. Now I do want to mention that there is a debate over who invented the first synchronizer. Some argue it was the French, while others say it was Swiss engineer Franz Schneider. But we'll let smarter folk debate that for us. What cannot be argued was the person who took the synchronizer to the next level, 25-year-old Dutchman Anthony Fokker. What we know for certain is that Fokker built upon the early work of Swiss and French designs. Fokker's synchronizer, or interrupting gear, allowed a forward-facing machine gun to fire through the gaps in the propeller arc thus solving the armament issue for tractor aircraft. Earlier attempts at the synchronizing gear met with some success. In December 1914, for example, French pioneer Raymond Salnier designed an interrupting mechanism and attached it to a Type L monoplane. However, the machine gun's rate of fire fluctuated too much for the synchronizer to work properly. As a backup measure, steel deflector plates were attached to the back of the propeller. Only 1 in 10 bullets struck the plates, and in March 1915, French pilot Roland Garros shot down three German aircraft using Salnier's interrupter. The Germans were dumbfounded. Fortunately for them, on April 18, 1915, Garros was obliged to force land behind German lines, and failed to set fire to his machine before it was captured. A team led by Fokker soon pulled the aircraft apart, and all was revealed. Within three months, Fokker had designed and built a whole new aircraft centered around the synchronizing mechanism. That aircraft was the E-1 Eindecker. The Eindecker was a revolutionary machine, the world's first fighter aircraft designed specifically for shooting down other airplanes. The arrival of the Fokker Eindecker marks the beginning of what Allied newspapers soon coined the Fokker Scourge. For six months, from July 1915 until early 1916, the Eindecker dominated the air war. The Germans enjoyed unmatched air superiority, and the Entente had no response. Casualties among early airmen began to mount. The RFC lost 120 aircraft over that span double the number of aircraft they began the war with. It was during the Fokker Scourge when we see the first examples of air-to-air -air combat tactics. German tactics with the Eindecker was to hunt in pairs or threes, to climb to 10,000 feet, and then swoop down on unsuspecting Allied aircraft, firing continuously before passing them at speed and climbing back up again. The Fokker Scourge produced some of the most famous German aces, namely Max Immelmann and Oswald Bulk. 
Now it is worth noting that the Fokker Scourge was not as deadly as the belligerent press would lead us to believe. Although the Eindecker saw the marriage between fighter and machine gun consummated, it was not mass-produced. The Germans only possessed about 40 of these aircraft at any one time, and their usage at the front was quite limited. Eindecker pilots were barred from flying over Allied lines, for fear the secret of the synchronizer might be exposed to the enemy. Thus, most of the E-1's victories took place behind their own lines. While Allied and German press would have us believe that the skies were blackened with Eindeckers flying overhead, nothing could be further from the truth. Additionally, the Eindecker remained a one-shot weapon. A pilot would pick out a potential victim, make his attack run, and then pull out to see its effect. If he scored a kill, well, good for him. If not, the now alert target would be too dangerous to approach a second time. Both pilots would be happy to call it a day at that point. In any event, the Fokker Scourge marked a cornerstone in the development of air power. At this stage in the war, there was little specialization within any of the air forces. There were no dedicated fighters, bombers, or scouts. Scarcely a single machine had yet been designed from scratch for a specific role. In response to the Fokker Scourge, the RFC had at last begun to reorganize its squadrons according to dedicated roles, so that each flew the same type of aircraft. Hitherto, any squadron might field a motley assortment of pushers and tractors, to which missions were assigned on a whim. None of these steps provided a solution, but it did encourage Allied pilots to experiment with new techniques and strategies. If the Allies could not attack the Eindecker head-on, their only option was to use their air power against targets on the ground. It was under these circumstances that aerial bombing emerged as a viable alternative. Now, aerial bombing was not a new development. As you'll recall from our earliest episodes, the Italians had used airships to bomb Turkish positions in Libya. But the Western Front was no place for slow-moving dirigibles. With so much firepower concentrated in one place, only faster and harder-to-hit aircraft had any hope of survival. Throughout 1914 and 1915, aerial bombing became part of each pilot's repertoire. Before bombs, pilots dropped flechettes, which were simple steel arrows equipped with stabilizing fins. These did not have the lethality of explosives, but they had a demoralizing effect on the target. The horrible wounds they produced appalled medical staff on both sides. But as the trench line solidified, flechettes were no longer effective. Explosives were needed to destroy barbed wire, bridges, and other fortified positions. In November 1914, three British aircraft bombed the German Zeppelin shed at Lake Constance. The aircraft which took part in this raid were Avro 504s, two-seater biplanes built in September 1913. Each Avro carried four 9-kilogram bombs. The pilots flew solo, and had to drop the bombs over the side of the carriage. Despite the ad hoc nature of the raid, none of the aircraft were lost, which showed the potential of bomber aircraft. On the battlefields, it was a different story. Throughout the scourge, the Allies launched numerous bombing raids behind German lines. Some met with success, others did not. 
The glaring problem was a lack of suitable escorts. While some bombers had mounted machine guns, this was not enough to fend off the prowling Eindeckers. This was a contributing factor to the Allied blunders on the Western Front throughout 1915. By this point, the Army had recognized the importance of aerial bombing and photography, but with the Eindeckers' dominance, they were deprived of these crucial advantages. Until an answer to the Eindecker was found, the advantage in the air war remained decisively on the German side. For the Allies, the big break finally came on April the 8th, 1916, when an Eindecker mistakenly landed on a British airfield. At this point, the Allies had produced two new models of aircraft which promised to outclass the Eindeckers in every way, the French Newport 11 and the British DH-2, produced by D'Avaland Aircraft Firm. The Newport 11 and DH-2 were superior to the Eindecker in many respects. The Newport was faster, more agile, and could climb to higher altitudes than even the latest Eindecker. On the other hand, the DH-2 was slower than the Newport, but had the advantage of a rear-facing machine gun, which allowed the observer to fire backwards over the tail. Fokker pilots soon learned that attacking a formation of Newports or DH-2s was incredibly dangerous, and the Germans began to lose Eindeckers at a rate never before seen. But since most Allied victories took place on the German side of no man's land, the secret behind Fokker's interrupter remained shrouded in mystery. When the Allies finally laid their hands on an Eindecker, Fokker's synchronizer could finally be taken apart and examined in detail. Much to the surprise of Anglo-French engineers, it was revealed the Eindecker was nothing special in terms of design. Its advantage lay in the interrupting mechanism and nothing more. The Allies now possessed the German secret, and air power was about to take the next leap in its evolution. In part 3, we will see how air power changed into 1916. That's it for this week. As always, be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow the show on Twitter at Great War Podcast or email me directly, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. If you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes. This is a quick and easy way to help grow the show, as the more reviews we have, the higher we'll place in the standings. This will ensure I never stray too far from my laptop and keep working away on new episodes. This has been Part 2 of the Great War Aircast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.